So this past year has tested and tried all of us. The lowest moment for our family uh, came on June 15th of last year. For, after having our residency rejected, receiving a permanent ban from the Central Asian country where we had planted our lives for the last decade, raised our children, after spending months challenging the process in court, after saying goodbye to friends and neighbors who had become family to us with little hope of seeing many of them again, at least this side of eternity, after packing away most of our possessions, giving away others, showed up at the airport in our Central Asian city, prepared to begin a new life serving diaspora Central Asians in Germany. And though we had all the necessary documents and received verbal permission, at least, from the authorities that we could travel, the check-in agents refused to allow us to board the flight without written permission from the authorities in Germany. Uh, a picture, I don't know if we have it there, took that picture as we sat outside waiting for a friend to pick us up. At that point, we'd been rejected by our adopted country where we had raised our kids, but we weren't able to leave it. Five of us and our dogs spent the night on the friend's living room floor and unsure of what to do or how long COVID restrictions could keep us from actually being able to move and to travel to Germany, we woke up the next morning and I came up uh, with one of the best ideas I've ever had, and I don't have many. And that is, I looked at Ginger and I said, let's just take a vacation. So we found a small rental for a good rate near the ancient city of Ephesus. And for the next few days, we spent time decompressing, swimming, bouncing the beach ball, visiting the sites of the seven churches of Revelation. But one of the best parts was how God put us next to an older missionary couple. The large country of 80 million people has fewer than 7,000 known Christians. Think about that for a moment. 7,000. We could fit them all in this room if we absolutely had to. And it just so happened that at one of our lowest moments, God, in His kindness, put us next to workers who had served in our country for several decades. Johanna and Mary prayed with us, encouraged us from the Word. Minister to us in our grief. Now the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing in them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It comes with the promise. And the promise is this. Behold I am with you always even to the end of the age. And through many trials I can testify that again and again. Christ has proved faithful to his promise, this promise, in the life of my family, demonstrating to us again and again his provision, his presence with us, and his protection. And that includes the protection that he made and the provision that he made at just the right moment through our brother and sister, Johanna and Mary. The passage we're going to look at this morning as we continue this series through this journey through Joshua, we're going to consider God's promised protection. Believer, do you have assurance that God has His hand of protection upon your life and that He is with you regardless of the trial that you may currently be going through? We're in Joshua chapter 2 this morning and I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to that chapter and stand with me as we read God's word together. 
The Bible says this, And Joshua, the son of Nun, at dusk, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that will save that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all of your father's household. And then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed, went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. And then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the Lord melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. The first big idea that I think emerges from this narrative is this. And that is that God protects his people as he carries out his plans and purposes. Whenever we receive a promise, we want some kind of guarantee that it's going to be fulfilled, right? Like when you go online and you purchase something, uh, you order something, and then that automatic confirmation email shows up in your inbox. You expect that. And when you don't get it, you worry. Like maybe it didn't go through or something like that. You want some kind of confirmation that this promise that this online shipper has told you is they're they're actually going to send it to you. And up until this point in the Pentateuch, 
God has made some astonishing promises to his people. Going all the way back to the book of Exodus in chapter 23. He says, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. Or Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6 where he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Or Joshua, just what we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 1 verse 5 No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God has made some big promises. And now it's time for that confirmation email. His people are standing near the east bank of the Jordan River, preparing to make a crossing during flood season, staring at this heavily defended citadel that blocks their way into the land on the other side of the river. And what we see in the narrative that we read just a few moments ago in the protection that God gives to the spies sent out by Joshua in the person of Rahab is that he is reassuring his people that he means to fulfill those promises. He will do it. Some reading this passage have critiqued Joshua's approach toward the conquest of Jericho, suggesting that he doesn't go to the Lord, he doesn't pray, he doesn't consult him for next steps, and that sending the spies demonstrates a lack of trust in God. You should have waited for God's miraculous intervention. And Joshua and the Israelites will be chastised for breaking faith in the Lord, but we don't see that until we get to chapter 7. He isn't chastised for that here. There's nothing in the text to indicate Joshua is doing anything wrong by sending out spies to scope out Jericho. He's not been given any instruction on how to defeat Jericho, at least not yet. And he simply knows that the city is standing between Israel and the land that God has promised to his people. He may have consulted the Lord in prayer, and we're just not told that in the text, maybe. Besides, praying and then failing to use the means that God has gifted to us is almost as foolish as using those means without praying. God may do a miraculous deliverance in our lives. But we shouldn't just sit around presuming that he will act that way. And it's a good thing because while these spies may have their heart in the right place, they're something else, aren't they? I mean, they are like the um, uh, Israelite version of Johnny English. Uh, If you've seen those movies, maybe you haven't. (laughs) They get to town, they immediately end up in the house of a prostitute. Not only that, they're immediately discovered. I mean, they are the very worst spies. Look at the text. It says in verse 2, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. They may as well have had spy written across their forehead, or we're coming to attack you. On top of that, they're barely doing any spy stuff. They're not making any attempt to scope out the city. They're not evaluating Jericho's defensive Not to be outdone, the king's men are equally as incompetent. Rahab tells the spies that they've been there, or tells them, the king's men, that the spies have been there. But then she lies and tells them that the spies have moved on. And that's enough to send these officials off on a wild chase. And now we come to a question that almost everybody has about this story. Was Rahab wrong to lie to the king's men? 
to protect the spies? We're not going to spend a ton of time on that question this morning. Hope that doesn't disappoint you. Mainly because it's not the main point of the text. It's not the main point of the narrative. And also because there's not an answer that's likely to satisfy us. The first reason is that the text doesn't really comment either way. Rahab, in telling her lie, it isn't commended uh, to us, uh, but it's not condemned either in the text. Um, She is commended for hiding the spies. And we see that in the letter to the Hebrews. We see it in James's letter. But her lie is not mentioned in either of those letters either. Rahab was no doubt caught in a moral choice. That happens in our world where telling the truth meant to sacrifice the lives of those who she was hiding or telling a lie meant sparing them. But what we have to say is that anywhere and everywhere lying is a sin because God is a God of truth and lying is against his character. And it's pretty clear that lying came easily to Rahab. She was used to doing it. Just like it comes easily to all of us who are sinners. On top of that, God didn't need Rahab's lie to protect his people. But in his economy, he still used her lie to protect these spies. And Rahab's commended for her desire to protect the spies. More importantly, even... Rahab's action here, this questionable action, this morally ambiguous action, it shows us that her life, her heart, was moving toward Yahweh. It was moving toward Israel's God. In fact, she does everything that's necessary to protect the spies. Verse 6 describes how she led them to the roof of the house and hid them with flax. The roof in this kind of house would have been the most private and secret part of the house, the area that would have served as the sleeping quarters for the occupants. And even the inclusion of this detail in the text shows us just how Rahab took utmost care in protecting these spies that had come to her. And she just really opened up her life and her home to them. See, God has promised Joshua and Israel that he will be with them to protect them as they go to take possession of the land. And Rahab is clearly God's instrument to fulfill that promise in this story. But beyond the story, God's protection is consistent with his character. It's just the way that he acts on behalf of his people. In the Psalms, he's a fortress and he's a tower. A refuge that we can run to. In Deuteronomy, he's a mother eagle who takes the chicks up under the wing. In Hosea, is a mother bear robbed of her cubs. It's true even for each of us in this moment. Our lives, our families, our society, our nation is sustained even now by the protective mercy of God. Even if you don't believe in God, you're here this morning, you don't believe in God, or you're rejecting Him with your life. You're here this morning, maybe you're watching online, You have never known a moment in your life where God has not sustained your very breath, the very breath that you breathe, where He's not, uh, where you've not been sustained by every meal that you've ever eaten. Before we move on to look more closely at Rahab's confession in the next few verses, 
I want to point out one more thing that I think it's important to note. And that is that God's protection in no way means that believers will never face danger or trials. Sometimes God will even use trials in our lives to purify us. Friend, safety and protection comes in our nearness to God, not in our distance from those who might wish to harm us. Our ultimate protection is in the fact that we were once rebels against God, justly deserving the wrath and punishment of our sin and hell. But we are now, praise God, safe in Jesus, the one who took the punishment for our sin upon himself and now promises always to be with those who put their faith and trust in him. And as such, Jesus' protection frees us to take radical risks for the sake of his gospel, like the risk that Rahab takes in this passage. His protection is over us for the fulfillment of his plans and purposes. What's the worst that can happen? Get thrown out of where we live? Thrown into prison? Have our bodies destroyed? None of that can do anything to us. Because we're safe in Jesus forever. We see that kind of radical risk-taking in Rahab as God's protection was not merely for the spies and for Israel, but it was for her too. And that's the second big idea that comes to us in this text, and it's this. God delivers people who cast themselves on his protection by faith. So who is Rahab? Well, there's a long tradition in the history of the church stretching all the way back um, to someone outside the church, to Josephus, to identify Rahab as something other than a prostitute, something like uh, maybe an innkeeper, perhaps. And the Hebrew word zona that's used here it has pretty clear connotations, meaning someone who engages in sexual activity as a profession. She's a prostitute. But besides that, any attempt to rescue Rahab from her profession or from her job, it diminishes what God is doing in this text. Because of all the people in Jericho that we might expect would be delivered from the judgment that's about to fall on this city, maybe think of a small child or a sweet little grandmother, a pagan prostitute seems like one of the least likely candidates. And that's exactly who God sets his love on, brothers and sisters. Acknowledging Rahab as a prostitute isn't to say, however, that we shouldn't see her sympathetically. Because after all, Little girls don't grow up dreaming to be prostitutes. They just don't. Countless factors in life, the depravity of a society, its callous exploitation of women, and more, conspire to lead a woman to the point where her best option is to sell herself. And in Rahab's case, she's literally marginalized. Literally. She's living vulnerable on the edges of the city in the margins. As much as anybody then, Rahab understands the evils of her own Canaanite society. This place that she lives of her own people and her nation. It's barbarity, it's coarseness, it's sinfulness. But what she understands even more than that, and even more deeply, is the identity of the sovereign God of the universe. Who he is, and what he's done. And that really is the center of the story. 
Rahab's deep faith and her transformation. Consider again her remarkable confession in verses 9 through 11. Look at those. She refers to the God in the heavens and on the earth beneath. To her, Yahweh is not some mere tribal deity. He is the all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe. In fact, compare her faith with the faith of the Israelites themselves. This land has been promised to their fathers for generations. It's been confirmed to them by Moses. They had seen the miraculous hand of God intervene over and over again on their behalf. And yet, many of their countrymen had still been timid about the prospects of taking the land. And here, this Gentile prostitute, who for all we know has only heard the reports about Yahweh and is so convinced that he is the one true and living God that she's willing to turn her back on her own family and risk her life and her family's life in the process. No wonder the writer of Hebrews singles her out as a prime example of his definition of faith when he says of faith being the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. When he writes, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given Because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Can you imagine turning your back on your own people, on your nation for the sake of gospel faithfulness? Think about that. We celebrate today the many blessings of this nation when we're right to do it. But in the experience of many, if not most, of our brothers and sisters throughout the history of the church and in many places today, gospel faithfulness and allegiance to the God of the Bible risks incurring the wrath of the nation and of the state to say, no, Caesar is not Lord. Joseph Stalin is not Lord. Ibrahim Raisi, the new, pre- the new leader of Iran, is not Lord. Vladimir Putin is not Lord. Neandra Modi is not Lord. Xi Jinping is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Can you imagine turning your own back on America if gospel faithfulness demanded it? (laughs) How's that for a 4th of July question? It may sound silly to us because our faith is not likely to provoke the wrath of the American government, at least not yet, thankfully. But in the Central Asian nation where we served for 10 years and in numerous other places in the world, our brothers and sisters know these dynamics all too well. In our Central Asian country, turning to Christ doesn't mean simply changing one's religion. I used to be a Muslim and now I'm a Christian. It means turning one's back on one's own people. The dreaded Christians with whom they have been fighting for centuries. And the consequences can be steep. Rejection by one's family, loss of a job or other educational employment opportunities, being ostracized by the larger society, being branded a traitor. But these brothers and sisters, they are not traitors because... Far beyond the nations of the earth, which Isaiah describes as a drop in the bucket, counted as the small dust of the balance. They've discovered a true eternal kingdom worth their highest affections. They are not traitors. Neither is Rahab a mere traitor. Rahab could, could not have cared less probably about Israelite national or ethnic identity. Rather, she too knows Yahweh. And she has embraced him as her God. And by faith, she has moved out from among those who stand under God's judgment and are about to be judged so and has joined his covenant family. She demonstrates what Peter, centuries later, will confess after his vision and his encounter with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. She demonstrates what he confesses is true, which is 
that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Let that be an encouragement to us, church. No one that you know currently, or that you'll ever know, is beyond the grace and mercy of God to save them. So we shouldn't evaluate our family, our friends, our acquaintances, based on how likely we think that they are to embrace the gospel of grace. Prostitute, meth addict, political boss, pornographer, Fortune 500 CEO, Muslim immigrant, grandfather who spent his entire life rejecting God. They all bear the image of God. And none of them are beyond the reach of God's transforming grace, brothers and sisters. They're just not. Our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel of Christ faithfully and God's spirit will transform the heart. So Rahab and the spies, they settle on an agreement with these conditions. She's not to tell anyone of the spies' business. She's to tie a scarlet cord uh, to the window of her home to mark it. And she's to gather all of her family into her house. And the plan with the scarlet cord, it recalls the Passover when God saves his people in the midst of judgment. If Rahab does these things then she and her family will be passed over and not harmed. Meanwhile, these spies, they make their way back to the camp. Verse 23, to tell Joshua, quote, all that had happened to them. I love that, all that had happened to them, because it wasn't what they had done, (laughs) Uh, but what God, by his grace and the purpose of Rahab, had allowed to happen to them. Without Rahab, these spies wouldn't even made it back, much less had anything to report. They repeat her words to them verbatim. Um, in their account back to Joshua, namely that the people in the city are melting with fear and that Jericho is ripe for the taking. The walls on the edge of the city of Jericho, they're going to come crumbling down with the protection that they've given to Rahab and to the people of her city, maybe for centuries, I don't know. But Rahab doesn't need those walls anymore to protect her because she is under the unshakable promised protection of the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is a shocking story when you start to think really deeply about it. Joshua is one of the most nationalistic books in the Hebrew Bible. And yet we see this vulnerable Canaanite woman right here toward the beginning of the story from among the exact people that Joshua and the Israelites are to expel from the land. A prostitute. And she, in her faith, is elevated to the level of the the lead character in the story, Joshua, the Israelite commander. What's God doing? In this book that is all about the triumphs of the promises of God to his elect people, Israel. What's God doing? God is revealing his heart for the outcast and for the nations. He is fulfilling an even older promise made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Rahab's role in God's redemptive story of the Bible, it goes far beyond what she does right here in her protection of the spies. According to Matthew's gospel, she'll eventually give birth to Boaz, who together with another Gentile woman outcast, Ruth, will give birth to Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David. And Rahab's far-off grandson will be the one who welcomes prostitutes and tax collectors. Women and the poor, the religious and the irreligious, Gentile and Jew, 
Rahab is no bit character in the drama of God's redemption. She doesn't just sneak into Jesus' genealogy. Her role in the big story of the Bible and her grafting into the lineage from which Jesus would come is bound up with God's saving purposes for the nations. Rahab is evidence of the gospel hope that any of us have. The mystery that salvation is extended to Gentile sinners like me and like you who join God's spiritual family by faith. Friends, that's good news. That's good news. That's good news. Yes, it is. <laughs> Got Herbert over here. Appreciate that, brother. Maybe you're here today and you're carrying a burden of fear, shame, or guilt. You claim to be a believer, but you've clearly forgotten or are failing to trust in God's promise to abide with you. Trusting to abide in his promised protection. First Peter chapter 5, verse 7, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. God delivers people who cast themselves on his protection by faith. He may not deliver you out of, his tri- out of your trial, but you can be certain that he will sustain you through it. Because if you are in Christ, the truest essence of his protection is his Holy Spirit dwelling in you. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Nothing can come against you to separate you from the love of God in Christ. Perhaps you're here watching online and you've never repented or turned away from your sins and trusted in Christ's death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection for eternal life. In a moment, we're going to sing one more song and I want to invite you to come to the front and speak with one of the brothers who will be standing here. Share with them what God's doing in your life. They'd love to tell you more about what God has done for you in Christ. Maybe Rahab's example of radical risk-taking and the assurance of God's promised protection of his people as he carries out his plans and his purposes in the world has convicted you that there's nothing more standing in your way of responding to a call to take the gospel to the nations. You better believe I'd love to talk with you about that. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing And as uh, we do sing, you can come. Let me pray. Father, we are so very grateful to you for your word, for this example that we have in the life of Rahab, how she points us to you by her faith. We thank you for your promised protection over our lives, that your hand has been upon us, that you knew all the days of our life before even one of them was yet written, that you are with us, that you abide with us just as you promised that you would be. We thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel, that the gospel isn't just for certain people who look a certain way, but that Rahab shows us the gospel is for all people. It's for every person that's sitting in this room or watching online today, Father. I pray even now that you would do your work to transform lives through the power of your word, through your gospel, I pray in Jesus' name.